And this morning we've come to the last of the Beatitudes. And before we uh, read our text this morning, I just want to say that a couple of Sundays ago, after uh, uh, speaking on the Beatitude that I spoke on, uh, someone in the church came up to me and said, you know, Pastor, I pray the Beatitudes. And that just so blessed my heart. Do you know, reading God's Word is truly wonderful. But praying God's word is even better. Because we're just not reading, now we're getting it into our spirit. Because what good is reading something without getting it into our hearts? The word of God needs to get into our hearts. So that person knows who she is, and I just want you to know how blessed I was by you sharing that thought with me. If you have your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're reading verses 10 through 12, and we're speaking on the blessedness of persecution. Now, how in the world can we be blessed by being persecuted? I mean, all the Beatitudes are so beautiful, aren't they? They, they just are sentimental, and they're lovely, and they're warm, and they're inviting, and they're encouraging, and they're strengthening, and they're edifying, but persecution? Jesus said in verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. That's the part that really hurts, doesn't it? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning and cause the word of Jesus to go deep into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 As we've been looking at the seven Beatitudes, we've come to see that these really are a display of what our lives are to look like as we pattern our lives after our model. Who is our model? Jesus Christ. Who is our pattern? Jesus Christ. How did he live his life? What was his character life? Jesus explains it to us in the Beatitudes. And it begins with being poor in spirit. Jesus, the Son of God, submitted himself to water baptism, not because he needed to, but just to fulfill all righteousness. Being perfect, his only concern was to please and to satisfy the Father in every respect. And so you and I, when we acknowledge, and this is the very foundation of our Christian life, when we acknowledge our own poverty, when we acknowledge that there is nothing in us that can commend us to God, Jesus had everything in him to commend him to God. But we as humans, we're born in sin. In sin did my mother conceive me. Every man, every woman, 
born in sin. Even though they might think they're the perfect ones, they're the righteous ones. How many lies does it take to make a liar? One. How many murders does it take a person to become a murderer? How many adulteries does it? One. And what that one sin is that condemns us, condemns us fully and completely as sinners. We need a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. But it's so important that we acknowledge our poverty because that is at the foundation of everything in our life that is to follow. In a reading this week by uh, T. Austin Sparks, who's one of my favorite devotional writers, he made this statement that gave me great pause. I am as capable of committing the worst sin that anyone in God's creation can commit. That's a shocking statement. You think of the worst sinner in the world, whoever it might be, Hitler, I mean, the Bible tells us that our human heart is so depraved, that our human heart is so evil and desperately wicked, that it has the potential of committing the most heinous and grievous sins. And Austin Sparks continues, and for anyone to take the attitude that they are not capable of the worst is an attitude of the deepest deception. They say, Pastor, why in the world are you telling me that? Because I want to be blessed, and I want you to be blessed. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Everything that God has, he has for us as we lay a foundation in being poor in spirit. That doesn't mean that we walk around with a downcast, woe is me, I'm a sinner. No. But when we come before God, we acknowledge that apart from His grace, apart from the cross, we have nothing in ourselves that can commend us to Him. It's all of grace. It's all of mercy. And by faith, we receive it, and then we live to His honor and to His glory. And we praise Him, and we worship Him, and we rejoice in this great salvation that has been so freely given to us. And so we come to the cross broken, we mourn with deep repentance, and that begins the process of the Holy Spirit beginning to develop in us the character of Jesus Christ. What was that character? Jesus said, for I am meek and lowly. We don't fight for our rights, we submit to the will of God. No matter what the cost, how difficult it might be, we maintain strength under control. You have every right to perhaps haul off and tell that person off. But no, you're going to be meek like Jesus. Zipper your mouth and say, Jesus, they treated you that way. Who am I to have to defend myself? These are the roots of a godly life. Poverty of spirit. Mourning meekness and out of those roots grow these beautiful fruits where we come to know who Jesus is and how much the Father loves us and we begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We become more like God, merciful, 
that we don't hold on to offense. We're merciful and we're forgiving and we're tender and we're kind. We have a purity of heart where there is not a divided affection, where there is not a double uh, uh, allegiance to, to the world and, and to God. No, it, it is a singular focus, a single eye on the Lord Jesus Christ in devotion to Him. And we live a life of being peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers where we seek to reconcile people to God and to one another. See, this is the sevenfold description of what a Christ-honoring and godly life looks like. But these roots need to go down deep so those fruits can manifest. See, we never arrive. These Beatitudes are something that are to be fleshed out of our lives every day, developed in, grown in, mature in. What are we doing? We're becoming more and more like Jesus. And isn't that the goal of our Christian life? It's not to get us to heaven. The goal of our Christian life is to be made conformable to the image of Jesus, to measure, Paul says in Ephesians, to the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're growing in this walk in Christ. And as we continue to love Jesus and, and, and do what he tells us to do and invite the Holy Spirit to develop these qualities and characteristics in us, we come to the end of this series. And the obvious question is, well, if I pursue this path, then, then what's my end going to be? What kind of life am I going to live? What should I expect? Well, Jesus answers that question in the text that we read this morning. Pretty shocking, isn't it? First, he guarantees that we are going to be blessed by God. We're going to be happy, joyful, satisfied, enviable people. People are going to look at us and say, there's something about you. I know you're not a wealthy person, but you act like the richest man or woman in the world. Well, when you have that much of God in your life, you, are, you recognize you are rich indeed. You are blessed indeed. You, you live an enviable life because you're spiritually prosperous. And there's no prosperity like spiritual prosperity. You, know, you can get a raise and be happy for a couple of weeks, but that wears off and you realize what you're spending in that raise. You need more because you want something else. And it's a never-ending cycle of just a downward spiral. But when you have Jesus, there's a, there's a deep contentment and then a hunger because it's so precious and so beautiful. And Lord, I just want more and more of you. But the second promise is you're going to be persecuted by the world. Notice in the text that we've read this morning that Jesus uses this word persecuted three times. What does it mean to be persecuted? It means to be harassed, to be opposed, to be ill-treated. Jesus said, if you are going to be my disciple, you make a note of this because as sure as shooting, without a doubt, this is going to happen to you. You will be persecuted. If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you will know that the world will never, never ever thank you for being a Christian. You know why the world doesn't love Christians? At best, they tolerate us with suspicion and at worst, they are openly hostile. And I think we're seeing more and more of that hostility. Jesus says, unequivocally, this is going to happen. And it's going to happen, saints. Then we need to embrace it. 
Then we need to accept it. This is the reality of my life as a Christian. Wherever I might be, in the workplace, in school, in your neighborhood, expect persecution. Expect harassment. Expect opposition. In fact, just being a Christian, there's going to, the devil doesn't like the way you're living, so he's going to bring everything he can into your path to oppose you, discourage you, and make you feel like, what's the sense of being a Christian? Jesus clarifies all of that for us, doesn't he? Peter writes to encourage believers who, because of persecution, actually had to pack their bags, leave their homes, and get out of Dodge. Because if they stayed there, their lives were in danger. And so Peter writes to them, he says, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. Do we understand as Christians that it's not an oddity to be persecuted? It's normal. What else should we expect from a world that is at enmity with God or against God? For those who love what is evil and hate what is good, when we are the antithesis of that, we love what is good and we hate what is evil. Those two things are diametrically opposed and there is this hatred and hostility toward holiness and righteousness and purity, even in love and in goodness. So opposition is a normal experience. Any knowledge of the word reveals that. It's a, a thread that runs throughout all of scripture. Go back to Genesis. In the first family, Abel was persecuted because Cain was filled with jealousy when he saw how God accepted Abel's sacrifice but disregarded his. And so the scripture records Cain murdered Abel. The second person born into the world was murdered because he was righteous. And history kept repeating itself. You know, you just briefly run through the scripture and you find over and over again how the righteous were persecuted. Joseph, persecuted by his brothers. In Egypt, he was cast into prison for saying no to immorality. Is that something to be persecuted for? That's righteous. That's good. Zechariah, the Bible tells us, was killed between the porch and the altar because he spoke the word of God. Elijah was despised and persecuted by Ahab and Jezebel. You remember those righteous priests of Nob who ministered to David? They were slaughtered because they protected the anointed of God. Micaiah was thrown into prison for speaking the truth. Jeremiah was thrown into a dry well. These mighty, holy men and women of God persecuted. You come to the New Testament and Stephen stoned for speaking the truth of God. Peter cast into prison. James beheaded. The entire course of the Apostle Paul's life, we know, was riddled with a long series of bitter and relentless persecutions. started with the apostles. We read in Acts 4, soon after Pentecost, as they, Jesus said, you're going to go into all the world and preach the, preach the gospel beginning in Jerusalem. So they began in Jerusalem, and guess what? 
as the Lord ministered to them and started saving souls and healing sick bodies, the Jewish leaders were just up in arms. So they called them in, threatened them. You know, you have to understand, in that day, the religious leaders were like God. People didn't have access to God. They had access to the religious leaders. They represented God. So they reverenced and respected these people. That was the mindset that they grew up with. And so they were threatened with their life. Don't you dare ever speak again in his name. And so we read in Acts 4 and 29, the apostles praying, Now, Lord, look on their threats, look on their persecution, and grant to your servants that with all boldness we might speak your word. But it didn't end with the apostles. They weren't the only ones who were persecuted. Then all the Christians in that first century church experienced persecution. Believers were imprisoned. Families were split. Beliefs were maligned. Leaders were executed wherever the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought. Persecution followed. And it happens still today. It happened in Thessalonica. And Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in your persecutions. We get persecuted. Someone looks at us the wrong way. We're ready to throw in the towel. These Christians were severely persecuted, yet they had a steadfastness in their faith and in all the afflictions that they were enduring. Remember what happened to Philippi? Paul got tired of that demon-possessed girl who was harassing them. And one day he said, I had enough of this. He commanded that de demon to leave her and those who used that woman for their financial gain because she was a fortune teller were furious and enraged. And Paul and Silas were beaten and thrown into prison. And he writes to the Philippian church knowing that they too are going to have to suffer even as he suffered. And he says these words that are really so challenging and so sobering. sobering. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. See, we don't have a theology of persecution. We have a theology of placing faith in Jesus Christ. And yes, we'll place our faith in Jesus and say, thank you, Jesus, that you rescued me from hell. And someday I'm going to be in heaven with you forever and ever. Hallelujah. Glory, glory. But the word of God says that this salvation is not only about believing in him, but also suffering for his sake. That sounds rather odd, doesn't it? And you thought that you got saved, that it meant you're going to float to heaven on beds of ease. Doesn't sound just, does it? It doesn't sound equitable. After all, we're making the commitment to Christ. After all, we're seeking to grow in Christ. We're seeking to display and manifest His character and His person. We're representing Christ to the world. Why should we suffer? And yet Jesus says, I'm telling you, hard times are going to await you. 
But think about it for a moment, saints. What was the path that Jesus trod? The perfect Son of God, who did no sin, who only loved, who only showed compassion, who only showed grace and mercy and kindness and goodness and miraculously fed people. He went about doing good everywhere. And who was more perfect than Jesus, but who was more persecuted than Jesus? Look at what the world did to him. And Jesus says in John 15 and 20, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. As Jesus lays out the Magna Carta, Matthew 5 through 7, the constitution and bylaws of this new kingdom into which he is bringing us, he's laying it out at the very beginning. If you're going to walk this path, know this, you will be persecuted. So let's speak more about the nature of that persecution. The Puritan Thomas Watson describes it well. There are two forms of persecution. There's the persecution of the hand, and there's the persecution of the tongue. And Jesus is speaking about these when he says that you will experience persecution and how many in the word of God suffered physical violence, imprisonment, and even martyrdom. I think we need to face the reality that this 21st century American church has no idea of what it's like to have persecution by the hand. As Americans, we are clueless. We're living in a bubble. We have no idea of how Christians around the world are being persecuted today. Did you know it's estimated that there are 100 million Christians around the world at this very moment that are suffering violence, imprisonment, and many are even being martyred. It's estimated that there are 150,000 Christians that are killed every year for their faith. How would you feel if you knew that being a Christian meant that I might die this year? If I choose to stand for Christ, I might die this year. 150,000 Christians are laying their lives down every year for Jesus. Perhaps that number would be more me meaningful to us if we realized that today, on August 7th, 400 Christians will be martyred today. Somewhere in this world, 400 will be martyred. Sobering. We need to pray for the persecuted church. Because while we think we are being persecuted, it doesn't compare to what other Christians are suffering in other parts of the world. And then there is the second form of persecution that Thomas Watson called the persecution of the tongue, where Jesus said, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What does it mean to be reviled? It means to persecute with the tongue, to insult, to slander, to curse, to mock, to ridicule. It also means to intimidate and harass with incessant accusations. This is the kind of persecution that Christians are suffering more and more in America. I know it's hard to 
fathom a land that was founded by Christians, a governance that was based on the righteousness and the truth of God's word, somehow, somehow, some way, Christians stayed cloistered in the four walls of the church and never got involved in government, never got involved in schools, never got involved in media, never got involved in entertainment where they could bring the kingdom of light. And now the kingdom of darkness has taken over just about every sphere of our society. And they're coming after us with a vengeance. They hate us. I don't know, sometimes it makes me scratch my head when I hear about how they see us as so evil. I mean, how could Christians deny women of their reproductive rights? Reproductive rights? Killing a baby is a reproductive right? And we're the ugly, biased, evil people. We have hatred in our hearts because we're against what God's word is against. Murder and immorality. Because they want to live the licentious, promiscuous kind of life. Christian kids in schools are ridiculed for embracing a standard of morality because promiscuity and free sex is the order of the day. That's the culture in which we live. The God-haters are hoping and trying everything they can to, to suggest legislation that will hurt the church and hurt Christians. They're trying to take away from us 501c3 status so that we're no longer exempt and we would have to pay taxes like everyone else. And yet there are all these other organizations that they're promoting these ungodly, righteous, unrighteous, evil, violent causes because it's all of the kingdom of darkness, but we should be surprised because Jesus said that's the kind of antagonism and hostility and hatred the world will have for us. But don't count it as strange, Christians. Jesus said, instead, you are blessed. Now we have to ask ourselves, how am I blessed by persecution? We encounter persecution and it does something on the inside of us if we are postured toward God in a godly and in a scriptural alignment kind of way. Because God is using persecution to accomplish his goals in our life. In the early church, he used persecution to accomplish his goal of the gospel being spread. Because when persecution came, they fled. And as they fled, what were they doing? They were sharing the gospel outside of Jerusalem, in Samaria, in Judea, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Christianity wouldn't exist today outside of Jerusalem if there wasn't persecution that forced them to go out. And it's been well said that the blood of martyrs becomes the seed of the church that grows. And where there is the severest persecution in places like Iran and other places like Nigeria and Korea, the gospel is spreading like wildfire in an underground kind of way. But I want us to look at this personally this morning. What's happening when we are reviled? 
You know, we're not suffering that kind of violent persecution yet. Yet. Although we, we saw in Canada that that precious pastor who came from another country that was communist and he was so grateful that he had freedom of religion in Canada, like America. And so he wanted to have church when his government said, no, you can't have church, but yet the abortion mills are opened. They dragged him through the street because he wouldn't go. He wouldn't close down his church. They threw him in jail for a very long time. So that kind of persecution, I believe, before Jesus comes, is going to get more severe and more intense, even in America. God help us. God help us. But in our lives, when we are suffering the persecution of the tongue and people slander us and oppose us and make fun of us, oh, they're goody-two-shoes Christian. They think that they're lily white and they do no wrong. Well, we never said that. We never made that claim. But they just want to mock us and ridicule us. Jesus said that when you do that, you're sharing in my sufferings because they persecuted me. They, they reviled me. They mocked me. So when we receive that same kind of treatment, we're sharing in his sufferings and in that suffering. See, we see suffering as pain. But you know, even in the natural, suffering is healing. I know Lorna just had this hip replacement surgery. She, she suffered pain, but that pain meant something happened there, but now there's healing that's taking place. And God is conforming us. He's healing us. He's chipping away at the rough places and making us look more and more like Jesus. Look at the Apostle Paul. He lived a life of constant sufferings. In fact, the day he was saved, what did Ananias say? He's going to suffer many things for my sake. Many things for my sake. And he said that there's something to be valued. There's something to be appreciated about suffering with Jesus. He didn't cry always me. Jesus, I said yes to you, and now everywhere I turn, you're, you're getting me beaten and stoned and shipwrecked and hungry and naked. And Oh, what the Apostle Paul went through for the sake of Jesus. But he said in Philippians 3 and 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Well, how do you know the power of his resurrection? You can't know resurrection until you know death, until you know suffering, and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him in his death. What is Paul saying? It is through these sufferings. It's worth all the pain that I'm experiencing because it's also allowing me to experience the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's causing me to be able to rise up above the pain of what I'm experiencing. And I'm knowing this reality. You see what's happening on the outside, but you don't know what's going on on the inside. On the inside, Jesus is more real to me than he's ever been. And he wants that reality to be made known to each and every one of us as we experience persecution and suffering. Samuel Rutherford, a saint from years past, after being imprisoned for the sake of the gospel, 
the saintly Rutherford said this, in my nine years of preaching, I never knew so much of Christ's love as he taught me while I was in prison for six months in Aberdeen. See, what he experienced is what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4 and 14. I'm reading from the Passion Translation. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are greatly blessed. Why? Because the spirit of glory and power, who is the spirit of God, resting upon you. Oh my goodness, saints. Do you, did you hear that? When we suffer, God says, I'm going to put on you the spirit of glory and the spirit of power. As I, in a few moments, I'm going to come to the conclusion of this message and share a bit about Richard Wormrod and more of that later. But he wrote a book called Tortured Torture for Christ. And he said this, I have found truly jubilant Christians. Where did he find truly jubilant Christians? Only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. What's he saying? It's the Christians who are persecuted who come to know the glory of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ that in spite of what is coming against them, they are still rising up because the spirit of God is in them. That same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit of glory that is resting on them. And that's why Stephen, when they were hurling stones at him, now just think about somebody just throwing a big stone at you. Wow, that hurt. Don't let it hit your head. It'll give you a concussion. It might even kill you. And they were pummeling him with stones. But the Bible tells us the countenance on his face was a countenance of glory. He, he maybe in his body was writhing in pain, but in his spirit he was being raised up. And in intercession he's crying out, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they are doing. Just like Jesus on the cross. That's what happens when we're persecuted and we're receiving it as a gift from heaven, allowing us to glory in his wonderful grace. Three Hebrew children were cast into the fiery furnace, weren't they? Because they refused to bow down. Okay, you refused to bow down? Okay, we're going to heat this furnace up even hotter than it was before. It was so hot that the soldier that threw them into that fiery furnace, he dropped it. They walked into that fire and their bonds fell off and Jesus joined them. And Nebuchadnezzar looked and said, I thought I only threw three in there, but I see the fourth and he looks like the son of God. The fires of persecution will not consume us. And that's the promise of Isaiah 43, verse 2, isn't it? When you cross deep rivers, I will be with you, and you won't drown. When you walk through fire, you won't be burned 
or scorched by the flames. God will be faithful to cause us to go through with victory and jubilation. And so Jesus concludes with these words in verse 12. When this happens, rejoice. Be happy and exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. See, payday is coming. People are enjoying their sin, but the wages of sin is death. But the wages for willingly and graciously enduring suffering for the sake of Jesus. Can you imagine the reward that the martyrs are receiving when they see Jesus face to face? And be exceedingly glad? I've got to confess, when things come against me, This message really challenged me because it really helped me get a whole new perspective on how I need to think when things come against me. Because persecution comes in all kinds of forms and ways, doesn't it? Can even be misunderstood by people in the church. I got a nasty gram from someone this morning. They're not here in this church anymore, but they used to be, and they just decided they wanted to spew some venom on me. But when, when I read it, I thought, wow. But God's making me say, rejoice and be exceedingly glad. You're serving me. You're sharing in the fellowship of my sufferings. Be exceedingly glad. God wants us to rejoice because he is with us. He is for us. He is in us. We rejoice because we're counted worthy to share in his sufferings. We rejoice because great is our reward in heaven. And we rejoice because we're in great company for so persecuted. They, the prophets who came before us. We're in God's inner circle. Amen. That's something to rejoice over, isn't it? Yes. I mentioned Richard Wormbrun. He was a pastor in Romania. And Kathy and I recently watched the movie Torture for Christ. It was based on the book that Richard Wormbrand uh, wrote years before. And it chronicles the story of how he was persecuted in Romania during World War II because of preaching the gospel. As you might know from your history, that communist Russia came in and took over Romania, where our dear sister Vicky is from. And Pastor Wormbrand who was against the law to preach the gospel. He still preached the gospel. And he realized the church had to go underground, but as it went underground, somehow, someway, he was caught and thrown into prison. Suffered horrific beatings and torture. His feet were so badly beaten that when he finally got out of prison after 14 years, and three of those years in solitary confinement where he never saw the light of day. I don't know about you, I don't think I could endure three hours, much less three years of that kind of treatment. But in the midst of all of that, as I was reading excerpts from his book and we watched the movie, 
clear to us how he experienced the blessedness that Jesus said would come to those who suffer persecution. And I want to share three quotes with you. This first quote explains this phenomena of being blessed in the midst of horrific persecution and torment. And by the way, I started telling you about his feet. They were beaten so badly that when he finally got out of prison and still went around preaching, he always had to sit because he could not stand on his feet. They were so badly damaged by the cruel beatings. In one scene in the movie, they put him in this closet that had nails that were nailed into the wall on all four sides. So if he leaned against any of those walls, he would feel those sharp nails. So he had to stand perfectly still. And you know when you're standing in a certain position and it was, it was constricted, it was a tight space. That's what we call violent persecution. But in the midst of that, he writes these words. There was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everyone danced. However, a deaf man who couldn't hear the music considered they were all insane. And then he explains, those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music which other men are deaf to. They dance and they don't care who considers them insane. And as the prison guards brutally beat Richard Wormrod and other Christians who were thrown into jail with them, they were like Paul and Silas who continued to praise God. One prison guard said once, how can you still maintain your composure and you're still praying? What else can you be praying? God isn't delivering you out of this. There is no God. He said, I'm praying for you. As you beat me, I'm praying for you that you would come to know the love of God. Another quote. Often after a secret service, Christians were caught and sent to prison. There, Christians wore chains, and they wore those chains with gladness with which a bride wears a precious jewel received from her beloved. The next time you suffer persecution, are you able to see it and embrace it? Thank you, Father, for this precious jewel that I'm counted worthy to suffer with you. When he finally came out of prison and he saw his wife for the first time, and his dear precious wife Sabina, who also was thrown in the prison for three years and had to suffer hard labor, she was consistently told, your husband died in prison. You'll never see him again. But somehow she just kept faith in God that someday she would see him again. And sure enough, God restored him to her. Can you imagine not seeing your wife, your most beloved in all the world for so many years? I mean, the first thing I would do is run to her, embrace her with a kiss. But Richard Wormbrand said, before we kiss, I must say something. Don't think I've simply come 
from misery to happiness. But I've come from the joy of being with Christ in prison. Where did the joy come from? It came from the fellowship with Christ in prison. Now to the joy of being with him in my family. Suffering persecution in one way or another is a guarantee. Paul said to Timothy, indeed all, I think that includes each and every one of us, if we desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will suffer persecution. How do we endure? Fall more deeply in love with Jesus. Come to know him in a more intimate way. You will come to see that there is no price that you can pay that can ever compare to the glory of knowing Jesus Christ, who promised never to leave you, never to forsake you. No matter what you experience, no matter what you suffer, no matter what persecution, no matter what the slander, hatred, bitterness that comes against you, Jesus is there with you. And his reality causes you to rise up in resurrection power and in joy and jubilation. So this morning I want us to close by singing that prayer again. Draw me close to you. Never let me go. I don't know about you, but I recognize this morning my need for Jesus. More of Jesus. More of Jesus. So Lord, draw me close to you. Let's stand as we sing this as our closing prayer this morning. Make it the prayer of our hearts.